Welcome to a truly special edition of The George Sanders Show. Not only this week are we celebrating our 20th episode. Can you believe it, Sean? 20 episodes. It only feels like we started doing this like 19 weeks ago. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it. Time flies. Yeah. Uh, there's also a milestone that's kind of being celebrated slightly larger in the you know global community. The 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, it's taking place on the 23rd of November um, with a special and a whole bunch of extra cool stuff going on. So in honor of Doctor Who, who will be our person of the week, we'll discuss the lives of the Doctor today. Um, our first gonna... non-human person of the week. <laughs> That's right. Our first fictional character of the week. Uh, we will also... I don't know. Do we really know if Lee Van Cleef existed? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Keanu, Keanu Reeves, though, may not be entirely human. That's true. Keanu was once a person of the week, and he's he's back again. He's clearly the uh, <laughs> the actor of our generation, I believe is what we called him, because uh, this is the second time he's appearing on our show. Because we were talking about time travel movies, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, a film that uh, affected me in so many ways, and we'll get into that when we discuss the film. Uh, and also Buster Keaton's Three Ages, uh, which... It's not really a time travel movie, although it's set in three different ages. We uh, travel through time. We travel through time yeah. watching the movie. Yeah. Even if they do. Yeah. Um, although they kind of do. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, and also, we're going to listen to a lot of Van Halen today. Yeah. <laughs> because... Because party on, dude. Yeah. So, uh, well, without further ado, let's uh, hear a clip from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. What? How? Oh, I hate that part. Bill. What? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Dudes, you guys are going to go back in time. Yeah! You are going to have the most excellent adventure through history. Who are you guys? We're you, dude! No way. No way. Yes way, Ted! Look, we know how you feel. We didn't believe it either when we were you, and we us said what we us are saying right now. Okay, wait. If you guys are really us... What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <sighs> Alright, that was a clip from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure uh, from 1989, directed by Stephen Herrick. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about two kind of fuck-ups, Bill and Ted. Uh, they only care about their band, Wild Stallions, and they're doing terrible in school. And they're threatened, uh, their friendship is threatened by the fact that if they fail history, they will fail school and uh, Ted's father will send them to Alaskan military school. Now, this has ramifications for the entire planet because uh, it turns out that the music that Wild Stallions go on to make brings peace on Earth and creates this utopian society. And so... 700 years in the future, in the year 2688, 
these futuristic demigods or whatever they are send George Carlin in a phone booth, very Doctor Who-ish, uh, back to 1988 so that he can help them with their history report. And what he does is he gives them a phone booth that they travel through time in, and Bill and Ted choose to basically uh, kidnap a bunch of famous historical people uh, that they will use in their report. This movie to me, this and Bogus Journey, which we will talk about Bogus Journey a little bit uh, in this discussion, I'm sure, uh, were some of my favorite movies growing up. And I think part of it was I, I did have a striking resemblance to Alex Winter. Hey, my wife commented on that. <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, the gods didn't really deem it you worthy for me to, to look like a, Keanu. A striking resemblance to Keanu. Or George Carlin. You know, one or the other. Uh, so I really responded to this movie. Also, you know, I was a young rocker. Uh, and I also didn't care about school at all. <laughs> so clearly this movie was speaking to me. You were the target demographic. I was the target demographic for this film. Um, and I've loved it ever since then. Um, you know, I own 12 Blu-rays. Yeah. You know, I've got In the Mood for Love. I've got Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Because clearly you want to see this with the best picture and sound imaginable. Yeah, I, I saw this as well as a kid. I, I saw it in theater. I saw it on video and on TV all the time. Uh, I was not a, a rocker. I, I don't look at all like Alex Winter or, or Keanu Reeves. But I really liked history. So Oh, well, there you go. Uh, I came at it from a different, uh, geekier direction. <laughs> That, but that's what's so great about Bill and Ted is it's got something for everybody. In it. Um, yeah. So had it been had it been a long time since you'd seen it before yeah, watching this game? Fifteen or twenty years at least, probably. How much of it came back to you? I mean, did you really remember? Oh, I knew, I knew everything. Yeah. Uh, I think there was another movie we talked about that about earlier that I had a similar kind of experience where it had been a long Black time. Stallion. Ishtar. Ishtar. Uh, where it had been so long since I'd seen it, but I remembered every line and every inflection of every, everything. Because I watched a lot of movies on TV when I was young. <laughs> that explains a lot. Um, uh, so does it, it does it continue to hold up for you? Has it been? It does. I mean, I can see the... Well, I watched it maybe five or six years ago, so it hasn't been a long time for me. Um, it, it hasn't been super long for me. Um it does. I mean, I can see the flaws now. You know, there are some things about it. Actually, there's one thing about this movie that bugs me. Um, the rest of it I can, you know, I can roll along with. The one thing that bugs me in this movie is... Can you guess what it is? Uh, well, there's a few things that, that have always bugged me about it. Okay. So I'm curious what, you, what your one is. Okay. Because I bet it's one of the four or five that I have. <laughs> okay. So there... <laughs> There's that, that didn't bug me before um, when I was watching it now. Like some of the the rules and the time travel in this movie don't really make much sense, um, which is okay. That, that's not the thing that bugs me. But you know, the, at the beginning of the movie, um, the head of these three kind of uh, it's Clarence Clemens fl floating beans. Okay, it's Clarence Clemens from uh, the E Street Band. The big is band. it really? Yes, the big band is the oh. big band. <laughs> He died recently. He died like yes. a year ago. Yes, he did. Wow, I didn't know it was Clarence Clemens. Yeah. Maybe it's we like the first credit movie. that comes up in the opening, <laughs> at the end credits. Well, I've never been a big Boss fan, so there you yeah. go. But um, but he says, it is time, their separation is imminent. And there's this thing that runs throughout the movie where the time in San Dimas continues to go on, 
Which doesn't make any sense, because Bill and Ted at one point go back, which we hear in the clip, um, to the night they left and talk to each other. I don't know why they they have to then go into the future to the, the next day, why they couldn't just like hang out in San Dimas casually over the course of a night. Maybe there's like a time travel paradox with them existing in a you know, a different time stream or something. There's a whole lot of, of paradoxes yes. in the film. Like, uh, well, most obviously the fact that that Bill and Ted would split up and not form music, if not for the intervention well, of Rufus and the time machine. Yeah, clearly. But Rufus and the time machine can't come around unless Bill and Ted, Bill and Ted right. don't split up. Right. But those things I can roll with. Because it's, you know, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, you, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt here. The one thing that's always bugged me, and this is from when I was a kid, when I saw it when I was seven years old or whatever, um, eight years old, Ted falling down the stairs in his armor. Yep. And somehow, within the span of literally two seconds, getting out of his armor and having time to hide and leaving his armor intact so that it looks like he's still in it and then someone... Um, you know, can stab him, and then Bill can get really, you know, furious and, you know, take revenge. Right, and none of the people that stab him notice that there's no body and no blood and right. no, you know, sound or anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, always, always really bad. I thought that was stupid. In fact, that, that whole kind of medieval castle sequence is just kind of dumb. It doesn't Wrong. Really go anywhere. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are two things about the castle sequence, the the medieval sequence, that are great, and, and, and they include one are of they, my favorite are they parts the, of the movie. the princess babes? Princess Babes are great. They really are. I really do like the Princess Babes. Um, no. One is the line, take them to the Iron Maiden, which is the only reason they created that sequence. Sure. And they go, Iron Maiden! That's awesome. But then, it's also got my favorite line in the whole movie. And this movie has tons of great lines. You know, something strange is afoot at the Circle K. Yep. You know, there, there are great, great lines throughout this movie. You know, San Dimas High School Football Rules. Yeah. But my favorite line in the movie is, and it comes after this uh, stabbing of an empty suit of armor. You killed Ted, you medieval dickweed! <laughs> Which, when, when I watched it last night with my girlfriend, I said it at the same moment, in the same inflection as Bill, and it was just, it was a moment of glory. It really was. The, the language in this film is really, is really amazing. Like, it's not just the kind of, uh, like, Jeff Spicoli stoner surfer uh, California slang. It, it's that, plus this really kind of archaic and formal diction that the two uh, utilize that is unlike anything that we'd seen in movies before. It's not just valley speak, it's valley speak with like uh, uh, written by a 19th century novelist. It's it's fascinating stuff. And I actually really, really like the screenplay here. I mean, it's 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 crackerjack, it moves at a swift, you know, the direction, Stephen Herrick's direction it's kind of, you know, rote. It's, it's uh, workmanlike. Yeah, it's very workmanlike, which we'll talk about Bogus Journey. Bogus Journey is not workmanlike. Um, different director for that one. But um, but it, it's so... This movie just... I mean, it moves. There's never a dull moment in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And they throw so much stuff into this story. Um, you know, you, you not only get them traveling back in time to these different places, and some of the places, you know, they go to Vienna and they're there for like two seconds. But, you know, you get the Wild West scene and stuff. Um... So there's all that kind of fun stuff. And then you get the the scenes of them back in San Dimas going to the mall and all that great stuff. But then you've also got the concurrent uh, adventures of Napoleon, 
which are just fantastic. I mean, running, you know, going through that water park. And Napoleon devouring the Sunday. Yeah. Be, be, becoming the Ziggy Piggy. The Ziggy Piggy. Uh, which, by the way, a little trivia here for you. The two uh, ice cream store employees that give him the Ziggy Piggy and then do the Ziggy Piggy song mm-hmm. are the writers of this movie, Chris yeah. Matheson and uh, Ed Solomon. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I had a little bit of trivia that I that I noted in my little notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about King Vidor last week. Uh-huh. It's his version of War and Peace that is used in the uh, as like the stock footage of That's the, true. the Austerlitz battle sequence. And uh, I thought it looked like that. I thought it looked like Vidor's War and Peace. And then we looked at the credits at the end. It Vidor's was. War and Peace. Yeah. There you go. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. <laughs> uh, oh, so what are your other problems with the film? Do you have other issues? I do. I, I have a problem with the fact that uh, their presentation seems to go on for like hours, whereas <laughs> everyone else's is like 15 minutes long. No, but everybody's wrapped. I mean, I, I feel like that's okay because... No, it's, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, also, the fact that they are suddenly very well prepared for their presentation, like it's choreographed, they have lighting and music cues, and they suddenly know how to pronounce Socrates' name. They know who all of these people are in a way that we've never seen them actually, like, leading up to them getting into the high school. He's still Socrates. Yeah, he's still so. It's true. He's still Socrates and beat up and stuff. Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like Ted, you know, he just, he, it's funny because watching this movie, in my mind, who, which one do you think is smarter? Ted. See, going into this, I remember, I always thought Bill was the smarter one, and he is in the beginning of the movie. He's the one that's like, Ted, we really need to, you know, focus on this, you know, we need to study, and Ted's just like jumping up and down. But I think the movie is really Ted's journey, you know? Because Ted is the one that does all of the speaking at the end, you know? You see Bill fighting Joan of Arc and stuff, but Ted is the one that, you know, really, and obviously he's the one that's got the the home issue where he's going to have to, you know, go to Las Vegas. psychoanalyzed by... By, by Sigmund Freud. The Freud dude. <laughs> it's so great. Um, yeah, it's really Ted's journey. And Ted, you know, in the end, he's he's matured. Um, he's the one at the in the very the very end of the movie after they've you know made their presentation and they're in the garage rocking out again. He's the one that tells Bill, you know, maybe we should learn how to play our instruments. You know, he's the one that's kind of grown up a little bit, and I think that's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think the film says about about history and then kind of the 1980s? Because I think it has a, a distinctive point of view on like this generation of, of kids that is growing up in the 80s with no concept of history, and they're all just this kind of MTV generation kind of kids, and the way that they integrate these historical figures into their own understanding of of the universe, I think is really is really uh, optimistic and not just in the sense that, like, Wild Stallion's music leads to a utopia. <laughs> Which but, it will. But it's just the, the contextualization of, of the past in relatable terms for for these surfer kids. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I, I agree with you completely. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, there's the, there's the little bits, you know, where um, Socrates and Ted are, are um, They're kind of bonding by Kansas quoting... Lyrics. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know the hourglass. What is the days of our lives? Yeah, sounds through the hourglass. Yeah, um, yeah. There's all that great stuff, and um, yeah, I think you're right. It is an optimistic movie. It's it. Um, Bill and Ted are they're good people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sure they're morons, but you know they're, they're lovable. That they there's integrity there. They they love each other. You know, there's the you know 
the gay panic moment, which yeah, which you know I think it works in the context of the movie. It's just them, you know, it's showing it's, they it's love a, each other a, and being like, wait, wait, wait. It's appropriate for the time and place of yeah. the character. <laughs> um, uh, what do you, you're a music guy? This is uh, coming in 1988, 89, the the kind of height of the hairband era. What what do you think of the the musical bands in two the, heads are better than one because these are like the bottom of the this barrel is really of bad like the LA post punk hair bands yeah it's interesting to see the difference between uh, the soundtracks with this and Bogus Journey because this was a surprise hit you know right it's a very low budget movie. very low budget uh, George Carlin is the biggest star in the film <laughs> uh, the production company that uh, made this uh, actually went bankrupt and the movie was. Um, just sitting on the shelf, it may have gone straight to, it was going to go straight to video before it was bought up um, by whoever, MGM or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's bottom of the barrel. I mean, it's really, it's like poison, third third rate poison knockoffs, you know, kind yeah. of thing. The only, the only band name I recognized was uh, Extreme. Yeah. In their, in their pre, uh, porno graffiti days. <laughs> um, and then, but then Bogus Journey is funny because it's got this uh, musically star-studded group of, you know, it's got um, Kiss on the soundtrack, Steve Vai um, wrote songs for it, I mean, Steve Vai sucks, but, you know, <laughs> but he's, you know, a famous musician, Primus appears at the end of the band that goes on before Bill and Ted during the, okay. uh, they do Tommy DeCat. I haven't, I haven't seen Bogus, Bogus Journey in a really long time. Oh, either, so. Bogus Journey is amazing. I, I remember loving it with all of, like, the, uh, the... The uh, the Seven Seal references where they play Battleship with Death. And yeah, there's a, there's even a nod to Powell and Pressburger's uh, Matter of Life and Death when they get to uh, the Gates of Heaven. And uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen it since I've actually seen all of these cinematic references. Oh, it's yeah, it's a. I mean, I wish this. It's not on Blu-ray, which is a bummer. You know, Excellent Adventure is. Maybe it's coming down the pipeline, but um, Bogus Journey, I think, is um, a superior film, and it really is willing to take chances. I mean, they go to hell. <laughs> And it's scary, and then they get you know they meet these aliens station and they be, they create the the robot Bill and Ted. I mean, it's super cool. Yeah. Denomalos. Anyway, um, back to Excellent Adventure. Let me ask you this: you know, in that late '80s, early '90s era, there was a string of like dim-witted kind of rocker dudes. You got your Bill and Ted's, you got your Wayne and Garth, and then a little later you had uh, Beavis and Butthead. And I would even lump, I mean, they're not rocker guys, but, um, you know, um, Bob and Doug McKenzie uh, from Strange Brew are... are well, that's a different, that's a different generation. I, uh, it's only a few years before Bill and Ted was made. Yeah, but Bob and Doug were from, like, the same. Well, that's true. Bob and Doug were, yeah. Okay, so we can leave Bob and Doug out of this, because clearly, in the, you know, top ten episode we did... Well, they, and they're, they're also Canadian, where these others are all very much Los Angeles, even though... Wayne and Garth are in Aurora, Illinois. Right. Okay, well, of those three then, Wayne Garth, Bill and Ted, Beavis and Butthead, how would you rank them as uh, heroes? Who who do you like most? Uh, I prefer the Bill and Ted movies to the Wayne's World movies. Yeah, Wayne's World 2 is... I loved Wayne's World. I mean, I saw it like three times in the theater, but Wayne's World 2 was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> That, that it was bad, <laughs> uh, but Beavis and Butthead, like the original Beavis and Butthead, when you got like the videos and, right. and the skits, was was like a, a life changing experience. 
for me. Like there, <laughs> there, there were hours. There would be with some butthead marathons on MTV. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Moranathons, Sean. They were yeah. called Moranathons. Yeah, and <laughs> there were there were many of them when I was in college, and and I was there for them all. Yeah, so you'd go be with some butthead. Just as is, it's much more pure. Uh, I don't know if it's better, but it, it's it's more kind of revolutionary. It, it's it's changing the the medium in ways that the Bill and Ted aren't really doing. Because they're really just variations on on uh, Sean Penn's character from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, I can see that. I, I do. I think I have to go Bill and Ted, though. I, I really do. Um, I, I there's something about that friendship that I just really respond to, and I'm glad. Basically, I'm glad you didn't pick Wayne and Garth because yeah. I would have to. I liked the the Wayne's World sketches when they were on. It was like the the first Saturday Night Live I ever watched, and and I think I think this is kind of a universal thing that you always uh, idealize the set, the Saturday Night Live you saw when you were in junior high school. Oh, totally. And the first episode I ever watched was also the first Wayne's World episode. Uh-huh. So that was that was my era of Saturday Night Live. And so I I love those sketches and I love the first movie, but the the second not so much. And I haven't seen Wayne's World in a really long time, but I doubt it holds up as well as the Bill and Ted's movies. <laughs> I, I think so too. I mean, I I'd like to revisit Wayne's World at some point. Um, you know, I think part of the problem is uh, Mike Myers as an as a persona now has gotten so annoying. Well, I also that just, it's hard to separate that. I also just think his his comedy just hasn't aged yeah. that well. Yeah. Well, the best parts in Wayne's World are. And did you ever read that story? There was like a Vanity Fair article or something about Mike Myers, and it talked about how he didn't even want. Dana Carvey in the movie. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why Dana Carvey's moment, great moments are always tacked on to the end of scenes because they weren't in the script. It was like Dana Carvey just kind of improvising. And those are the best parts of Wayne's World. Dana Carvey is much better in Wayne's World in the sketches in the movies than Mike Myers is. Yeah, he, he's clearly the best. And I like I like Mike Myers' first three movies. I like the Wayne's World. I, I really like So I Married an Axe Murder and I really like the first Austin Powers but I haven't gone back to any of those movies, and I really, I, I, I kind of cringe at what I would think of them now. Yeah, I should, I should see So I Married an Axe Murder, because I know a lot of people that are, are big, big fans of that um, film. Well, there's talk of a third Bill and Ted movie coming yeah. out. Uh, Keanu wants to do it. What has what what Alex Winter been up to? Alex Winter's actually a director. Because yeah. um, I, was, I, was I was getting mixed up with Alex Cox. He was the director of Repo, Repo Man. Man. Yeah, <laughs> um, Alex Winter is. Uh, I think he still does occasional acting stuff, but he's uh, actually a director. He directed a, a documentary on Napster that came out um, last year, I think. Okay. Um, and he does, yeah, he does things like that. I think he does TV stuff and uh, Ben Ten, which I think is a kids show or something. He directs that. Um, he directed a movie called Freak, Freaked in '93. Uh, Okay. That I remember seeing a trailer for that looked just insane. I mean, lots of creature effects and really gross-out humor stuff. I, I can't imagine what a, a Bill and Ted movie 25 years later would look like. Well, apparently, all I know is it it's going to take their age into consideration. They're not going to be these old guys, you know, trying to be 20-year-olds or right. whatever. So they're good. I don't know. I don't know. Because, I mean, they would have to be successful musicians, right? At this point... Probably, yeah, I think so. Unless there's, unless, I don't know. I mean, what if, here here you go. Here's some fan fiction for you. Denomalos, right, 
he he uh, somehow finds a way to uh, corrupt the time stream, and so Bill and Ted then just become like the sad sack losers that they were destined to be originally, or not maybe not destined. Like to Back be. to the Future Two. Like Back to the Future Two, exactly like Biff, um, and then and then some. But you see, the problem is, is you can't. I I would be on board for a Bill and Ted uh, movie now. I you know if the same if. Uh, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon wrote it because um, they wrote the first two, um, but without George Carlin there, you know he's not, he doesn't have a big role, but you're gonna want to see Rufus. Yeah. <laughs> George Carlin. George Carlin's not coming back. He's not coming <laughs> unless there's some time travel stuff we don't know about, or they're gonna like use outtakes from the first two films. But I doubt that's gonna no. happen. No, that's not, that's not gonna happen. Uh, I liked uh, what you mentioned in your in your letterbox review of this about the uh, the burnt cheese sandwiches because I actually noted that as well and I actually paused it during the movie to point out that that uh, uh, Bill's stepmom uh, Missy, uh, who later becomes Ted's stepmom in the sequel, <laughs> right? As uh, she's like serving everyone uh, sandwiches and they're just totally just burnt to a crisp and everyone's like nobody's paying any attention because she's so cute. And, well, yeah, and, and I don't think I ever noticed it before because they don't comment on it. Yeah, you know, Bill just kind of looks at the sandwich, and it's kind of this like gag that no one really notices. And, yeah. and I saw that this time, and I was like, "That's really funny." And um, also the uh, the Nerf football that that, that Billy and, and Socrates are are tossing back and forth. Well, if we're talking letterbox reviews, you brought it up in yours. Um, the the budding friendship between Socrates and Billy the Kid is one of the greatest moments of this movie. Like, yeah. um, just seeing like Billy takes Socrates under his wing, and I love that Socrates is so he's down for anything. Yeah, you know he'll 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 save Bill and Ted from getting their heads chopped off. Um, you know he'll cause this ruckus. You know, obviously, Billy the Kid would do that because he's Billy the Kid. Well, um, so, so much of their interactions are like. In the background, uh, in, in, the, in the background of the scenes, as like Bill and Ted are talking, and you just see them like, you know, like Billy showing him how to like toss a football. Like Billy the Kid would know how to throw a football. <laughs> well, Billy the Kid was playing with the football when they went to pick up Socrates, so exactly. he he yeah he taught himself at that point. Yeah, um, and then well, and also just like the little communications is like Billy's like interpreting for Socrates like into like hand gesture form as Bill and Ted yeah. tell them you know wait here. He's like wait. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one, of the, one of the other great lines is, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to get it right, but uh, when they get out and, and Bill says, Billy the Kid, you're really taking the time travel well. I, I wrote that well. <laughs> it's, uh, Billy, you are dealing with the oddities of time travel with the greatest of ease. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. And then when they go to the mall in San Dimas um, and they're coming up the escalator and uh, Bill's telling everybody, now don't forget your partner. And I love, it's just it's unspoken, the but, buddy but you know, the buddy system you know, comes into play. And it's totally unspoken, but you know Socrates and Billy the Kid are going to be rocking it together. It, yeah, it's great. I actually really like the performances of all of the historical figures. I think they're, you know, some more than others, but the one I really want to point out is Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's. Uh, guitarist from the Go-Go's is Joan of Arc. And she doesn't have any lines because, she's, one, she's supposed to be French, so she doesn't speak English. And two, I don't think Jane Weedland speaks French, so she just kind of mumbles a couple of times in the movie to, like, show off that she's French. Yeah, she, she prays often. Right. There's something about her in this movie that is, like, really magnetic, and she's only in a couple of scenes really doing anything. There's the scene 
And it's my favorite scene of them bagging a historical figure is when yep. she's praying, and then the um, the phone booth comes down, and, and you know, Joan of Arc heard voices. She was kind of crazy. Of course she's going to go in this time-traveling uh, phone booth. That is exactly the performance I was going to point out of all of the historical figures. I, I think, and that scene in particular is just amazing. Just the look in her I know. eyes. She and does a wonderful like job. It's the, like the, the great, like, ecstatic vision of Joan of Arc <laughs> as, you know, as, as Keanu, like, extends his hand and... <laughs> And pulls her up into the phone booth, and she's so happy. It's great. Well, and talk about happy. Um, her her moment in the mall when she's doing the jazzercise, the jazzercise class, and she's just spinning her arms like crazy. Um, it's just it's it's wonderful. I think Jane Weedland. I think she had a career ahead of her as a as an actress, and it was sadly she, didn't yeah, go she's anywhere. Great. I had no idea if she was a go go. Yeah, she wrote uh, "Our Lips Are Sealed." She yeah, yeah. she's great. Oh, I love the go go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's wonderful. We should have listened to the Go Go's today, but I guess well, we'll some, some other time we will. So yeah, it's true. Yeah, we'll, sure. we'll have our time. Uh, I actually, speaking of the Go Go's, I think Gina Shock is the greatest member of the Go Go's. She's the drummer, and if you ever see pictures of the Go Go's from back in the day, they're they're all you know doing their um, you know bubblegum pop princess look thing, sure. but. Gina Shock is always, always, almost always frowning. Like all of them are like, "Hey, da da da," and I think she just wanted to be a punk rocker, and she's like, "Why am I doing this?" But Gina Shock rules. But anyway, uh, should we listen to some Van Halen? Yes, we should. Okay. That was Eddie Van Halen perfecting the rock and roll guitar solo in 1978 with Eruption. Indeed. Uh, one thing uh, I forgot to mention that I really wanted to mention with Bill and Ted's is uh, how terrible the other students' presentations are. <laughs> and not just the San Dimas High School football rules guys. Hey, with, Oxes is the best. With, uh, uh, I mean, computers. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh the the, the 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 asshole who's like I think I think Lincoln would be impressed with Sandy. Right. Yeah. I know I am. Yeah. <laughs> that guy that guy is bad. But the worst is the girl. Is the girl? Yeah. Talking about Marie Antoinette and was like, live to meet fast food. Right. You just want to punch her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I hope up. I hope that you know they waited. You know, since Bill and Ted obviously aced theirs that. They really looked at everybody else's after that and regraded everybody. Yeah, I, I, everyone else yeah. should fail. Fail, absolutely. They were terrible. They were terrible. Absolutely terrible. Uh, so, uh, in the news this week, last week, I had like done a bunch of research and had a whole lot of news, and we had covered a lot of stuff. This week, I got I got nothing. Yeah, I got diddly squat. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about Dave Carroll leaving the New York Times to become a curator at Metropolitan Museum of Art, and... I think in the last week, uh, Karen announced that taking over the DVD column in the Times would be Jay Hoberman, the longtime critic from The Village Voice, and that's good news because Hoberman's a, a really cool, terrific critic. Absolutely. We may talk about Hoberman later in the show. 
interesting. <laughs> uh, the only the only other thing I've really seen is uh, Film.com put up a list of uh, the. 25 best undistributed films of 2013, which it's a little early in the year for that, but they jumped out the gun and did it anyway. And there's actually a bunch of films on there that I have seen that played in Vancouver that I really liked, like uh, La Ultima Pelicula, and let's see. There's uh, Till Madness Do I Part by uh, Wang Bing, a Chinese documentarian who uh, I didn't get to see it in Vancouver, but I really wanted to. It played uh, after I left. Uh, there's Chiming Leon's Stray Dogs. There's The Strange Little Cat by Ramon Zercher, which didn't play Vancouver when I was there, but I've heard great things about. Let me ask you this. Is there any movie about, like, I don't know, some sort of detective that can't see stuff? Yeah, there's Johnny Toe's Blind Detective. Oh, perfect! Which is awesome. Oh, well, hey, well now I'm interested. And there's one that that is well in keeping with the theme of uh, this week's show called uh, Spell Toward Off the Darkness which is kind of an avant-garde documentary type thing that's divided into thirds. The first third is kind of like a verite look at a, like a hippie commune in the Baltic Sea region, like in Estonia or something. And the middle third is this guy kind of wandering through the woods and then setting a cabin on fire. And the third is this like really intimate, close-up look at uh, like a Finnish black metal band performance. Awesome. And it's it's a really fantastic movie. I think so, I need to check that out. Yeah, I think I think you'd like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't see it. You can't see it because it's an undistributed film. But it, they'll they'll be out there on on video or in like streaming, or you can probably steal them. But most <laughs> likely, you can rent them at Scarecrow Video. And yet another <laughs> story on Scarecrow Video was posted today in uh, in the uh, Seattle Times. Uh, it's it's a fine article. It's got a picture of our friend Matt, who, Hi, Matt. who works at Scarecrow. Uh, he's looking uh, he's looking very Matt like picture. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, go rent movies at Scarecrow. All right, we promise that's it. We're not going to talk about that again. Yeah. Um, the last thing of news, and this is just tying this into the whole show proper, is Doctor Who's anniversary is coming up. Uh, on November 23rd. And the Doctor is also our person of the week. That's right. So let's talk about the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean, I believe you... Can you tell me a little bit of your history with the Doctor? Uh, I knew uh, I knew of him. Uh, growing up in, in the 80s, there would be like Doctor Who on, on PBS at like 11 o'clock at night. And uh, my mom was really into to sci-fi and sci-fi television. And she would every once in a while tried to uh, get me to watch Doctor Who and I, I couldn't do it. Like I, I never understood what was going on. The, <laughs> the the effects and the sets and the the British, you know, BBC video just looked so hideous and ugly Bad. to me. I just yeah. I could not get on board with it. Whereas, you know, like the original Star Trek series I loved and would watch all the time. Um but around the uh the kind of middle of the reboot era uh, I gave it a try. It was on like the the instant Netflix and started watching the the new Who, starting with like the Christopher Eggleston series, and and my wife and I watched all of that, and we continue to watch it all. It's great, and I've gone back and, and watched like a couple episodes of like the Tom Baker era, mm-hmm. uh, and it's good. But I haven't I haven't dived into it whole hog like like you have. <laughs> yes, I have. I, I I'm very similar. I think I, I you know I, probably a lot of people in the states have the same. Uh, story is that you know I I remember Doctor Who being on fleetingly. Um, I never watched more than a couple of minutes of it because that you know, like you said, it's hard to figure out what's going on, uh, especially if you don't know the mythology at that point. You well, just see the, some. 
the the episodes they were serialized episodes so you you'd start watching and it would be like the third part of a four part story right. and you have you literally no, have no idea what's going yeah. on <laughs> um, and so I remember Tom Baker you know on PBS periodically but it never really made a big impression I never decided to to dive into it um, and then I actually tried to get into uh, our friend Jeff was really into Doctor Who is yeah. is really into Doctor Who, um, and was really pushing for me to watch it. And I actually started with the first of the uh, the Christopher Eccleston, and there was something about Christopher Eccleston at the time that rubbed me the wrong way. And I just I was like, I don't know if I want to keep going with this. Um, and then thanks to actually Community, uh, the wonderful NBC sitcom, oh, yeah. Inspector uh, Space Time, Inspector Space Time. Um, I was like, maybe there's something here to this Doctor Who stuff. And so I went back, and I actually watched, um, from the 10th Doctor, I watched David Tennant for a couple of seasons. And then once I was on board with the show, because David Tennant is amazing, I went back and watched Eccleston and then kind of got caught up. And then I spent the first part of this year um, watching old stuff. And I've watched, I've seen, uh, I've seen a fair amount of almost every doctor except for uh, the sixth and the eighth, because the sixth is almost universally considered the worst part of the show. Uh, the doctor was kind of a jerk. The stories were really bad. Um, they started to remedy that um, in the seventh doctor, um, and just when they were getting good again, then the, the BBC canceled it. <laughs> yeah, I actually. Actually, uh, was was aware of of the Doctor without knowing it because one of my favorite uh, authors growing up and continues to be one of my favorite authors is Douglas Adams, who worked on the show in the seventies. Uh, he did. He worked nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, he worked. Uh, he he wrote a couple of scripts. He was the script editor for one season, um, and he has two and a half credits to his name. Yeah, and his his book Life, the Universe, and Everything, the uh, the third. Of the uh, Hitchhikers. of the Hitchhikers uh, series uh, is an old Doctor Who script that he repurposed for the Hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy Universe, and also uh, his uh, Dirk Gently Solicited Detective Agency, which is my favorite of his books. It's not a Hitchhikers book. is also is very obviously a, a Doctor Who plot. It was based on Shada, which uh, actually. <laughs> Here's how much of the of, off the deep end I've gone with Doctor Who. Not only have I, I do I watch the old stuff, uh, I also read the books now. Um, and <laughs> Gareth Roberts, who has written a number of episodes for the uh, the new run of Who, um, was given the task by the BBC to take the original scripts of Shada from Douglas Adams and write a novelization of it. Okay. And I just finished that like three days ago, and it's actually really good. So, uh, but if, if we're speaking Douglas Adams, City, if you want any place to start. With the uh, er, the original Doctor Who stuff, City of Death, which he wrote for Tom Baker uh, in the seventies, might be the greatest Doctor Who episode of all time. It is so funny and so ingenious, and it's really, really wonderful stuff. Right on. Uh, so let's talk a bit about the Doctor, like as a, as yeah, a character, because yeah. he's one of the the iconic. Uh, I think he's one of the like iconic figures of, of English language, you know, culture. Uh, he's he's a variation on Sherlock Holmes, but you know, this is his fiftieth anniversary that he has almost constantly been in in the public in the public eye, and very few characters last that long. Sherlock Holmes is one of them, but I, I don't know how many other English language characters do, other than like uh, people in Shakespeare or or Dickens. Well, and the reason for that, 
the main reason is the the beauty of Doctor Who is that the Doctor uh, this was a necessity at the time when they in in uh, the mid '60s when they the Doctor that was originally played character uh, William Hartnell uh, had to leave the show. He was getting old and it was getting ugly. And they were like, well, this show's so popular, what are we going to do? We're going to cancel the show. So they created this idea of regeneration, right. which is great because not only do you get another doctor, another person to play the doctor for another generation of, of kids growing up watching it, uh, but the character changes too. Like, I mean, the essence of the character is the same. He's, he's kind of a, a, you know, a wide-eyed, space-traveling, you know, crazy person. Yeah, there are, there are a few essential traits that the doctor has. Like like he he is an alien, but he's curious and he's non uh, non-violent, but he's uh, Well, there's some there's yeah, okay, yeah. I and you're right, but he's non-violent in that he doesn't carry a ray gun as he goes around through right. time. Right. He makes Ace do that. She anybody uh, <laughs> um, yes, but the difference between, for example, Christopher Eccleston's Doctor and David Tennant, the one that came after him, is night and day. I mean, yeah. in a lot of respects. And it you know brings out the different strengths in the actors. Like I, I really like the Christopher Christopher Eccleston Doctor because he's he's much edgier and, and darker. Like uh, Tennant is is great, and I I love David Tennant. He's he's a terrific actor. But towards the end of his run, he gets really kind of one note and shouty all the time. Which like the first couple of years when David Tennant gets all worked up, you're like yeah, but. After a while, it's like, oh, come on. I don't think that was quite his fault. Yeah, uh, it was I mean, part of the, the problem with, like, the Russell T. Davies era just kind of winding to the end. But um, Yeah, no, I know. I agree. Yeah, no, I actually, I, I should go back and say Eccleston, um, the second half of Eccleston's season is really, really good. I, it was just, the first, the problem is, okay, here's the problem. The Slovene uh, come on in, I think, the second or third episode, and those, are, if you don't remember, those are those farting aliens. Right, and it's terrible. terrible. And it, and not only are they there, it's a two-parter. Yeah. So you have to watch them for two weeks. And then one of them comes back for an episode, the, which actually that episode's pretty cool, but uh, at the end of that season. So anyway, it was, you know, but I really grew to like Eccleston's Doctor. I really did. So of the Doctors, uh, since you're only really familiar with 9, 10, 11, who's your favorite? Is Eccleston your favorite? Oh, probably David Tennant, okay. just because he's... He's such he's such a good actor. Right? He's really he, wonderful. He's terrific. Yeah, I'm really. He's also gonna like. I like I like David Tennant and other things. I saw his Hamlet mm-hmm. that he did for on like uh, BBC. I think with Patrick Stewart as the uh, as the the king, mm. uh, and that was good. Uh, he's in this uh, series Broadchurch, which we watched most of just because David Tennant, Tennant was in it. And that was like the most seriously over-directed television show I've ever oh, really? seen. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's like I know how to use a digital camera. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad, but but Tennant is great. Tennant is great. Yeah, he's uh, Richard the Second right now, and I think uh, Sif is going to stream um, him from the Royal Shakespeare uh, Company uh, sometime in December. Right yeah, and I like I like Matt Smith. Fine. I think Matt Smith is fine. Yeah, I, I think he's better when he's being goofy than when he's being serious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to be as worked up about him leaving, partly because I'm so excited about Peter Capaldi uh, yeah. taking on the role. Um, and also, yeah, I, I feel like Matt's thing has kind of come to its end. And um, I think he's great, though. I really do. Um, I actually... Every doctor that there's been that I've seen, I, like I said, I haven't seen uh, Colin Baker, the sixth doctor. And I've only seen Paul McGann... Um, the eighth Doctor, who famously was just in a TV movie in '96, right? Um, and did you see the Night of the Doctor that was released this week? No, but I, I have seen uh, uh, 
that movie he was in with Richard E. Grant, uh, where they get drunk a lot. That sounds like fun. Uh, uh, with Nail and I. Ah. I have seen With Nail and I, which uh, is, is fun. Yeah, well, anyway, what I was going to say, I like almost every incarnation of The Doctor. I mean, there's some that I like more than others. I would probably put my top three as Tom Baker, David Tennant, and Sylvester McCoy. Um, Sylvester McCoy's Doctor's really underrated. He's like, the, he, when you were talking about violence, I mean, he commits some things that kind of show you the dark side of the Doctor. Like, I mean, which led to the Time War, which led to all the stuff, the crazy stuff that's going on right now. Um, I think we should wind this down because this is, I could just keep talking about Doctor Who and this yeah. is just going to well, change we should, the show. Yeah, we should uh, talk about our, our Cinema Central for this week, which is is in keeping with the, the Doctor, our uh, time travel movie. And you have like a lot of paradox issues with Bill and Ted, like not serious ones, obviously, because Bill and Ted. Uh, so what is your essential time travel movie? Does it resolve those kind of paradoxical issues? It does better than Bill and Ted does. Um, originally, you know, you don't want to go the obvious route all the time. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about a lot of different time travel movies. Like, I like Primer. I think Primer's really good. I know it's the hip pick to, you know, for yeah. people to take. But I do think Primer's a really uh, interesting movie. And it's I think it's a lot better than Upstream Color, which everybody else seemed to like. And I thought it was a load of malarkey. But anyway, we're not talking about that. Uh, I think, I'm sorry, the best time travel movie of all time is Back to the Future. Um, I, I think the screenplay for Back to the Future is one of the greatest screenplays ever written um, in the history of mankind. I, it, it, Lindy and I, we rewatched. Uh, we have a tradition every Thanksgiving. We usually do a double feature. You know, we, we kind of, we, we um, watch one movie, then start kind of preparing the food and stuff, and then when the food's ready, we sit down and watch another movie. Um, it's been really fun. We do these interesting things with it. But two years ago, we watched all three Back to the Future films in a row. And I was just blown away by how incredible that first Back to the Future movie is. I mean, it's perfect. It, you know, I, I don't know what else I can say about it. I, I, I would have one quibble with Back to the Future. What would that be? You wanted uh, Eric Stoltz. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that, that Chuck Berry got his idea from some white kid. Yeah, I know, Sean. <laughs> well, you know, it's not as egregious as um, at the end of Ferris Bueller. Uh, when he's singing uh, with John Lennon's voice, <laughs> yeah, that's that is also disturbing. Uh, the the best thing about Back to the Future for me, and this may just be the age I was when I saw it, is is Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson's great, and I, I bow to no man in my love for Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson is uh, is really wonderful. Um, the great thing about think, Back to the I think Future, the sequels suffer for not having Crispin Glover. I, they do. They really do. Crispin Glover is really uh, a, a big part of what makes that those that movie so good. Um, what I just love is the first fifteen minutes sets up everything, but in such a clever way. And all with Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah, you know, um, it's 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 a perfect movie. I just think it's yeah. great. It's it's a, a very well constructed film. It's easily Robert Zemeckis' greatest film. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I put who I, I like who framed Roger Rabbit a lot, but I wouldn't put it up there with Back to the Future. No, no, I, I'm going in uh, kind of a different direction, more along the lines of the Three Ages, and I'm going with uh, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, 
which is the movie that that uh, Three Ages is kind of a parody of. I think it's there's actually an, another a third movie that Three Ages is more directly paralleling that was inspired by Intolerance. Mm. I'm not sure though. Mm. Uh, but it's a similar kind of approach to time travel in that it shows four different eras of human history and it shows like the parallels of human events through them. And it was Griffith's uh, supposedly it was Griffith's uh, uh, apology for Birth of a Nation. Uh, I don't. It doesn't read as an apology to me. It reads more as like an indictment of the people who he thinks were intolerant of him. Right. <laughs> how being, dare you accuse being, me of racism? Right for being racist. Right. Like uh, you know, how dare you try and silence my racist speech? Right. <laughs> Uh, but it's a great movie. But it, but you know, setting aside all of that and just looking at it as a, a movie in itself, it's it's amazing. And it's, it's from 1916, and and it's just remarkable in in its scale, in the complexity of like the editing, not just within the scenes, but in the the cross cutting uh, between the different eras and the different parallels. And it's got uh, you know a, a terrific cast. It's got Lillian Gish rocking a cradle. It's great. Yeah, I. We talked about it on the show previously when it was it, what, about a month ago. It played yeah. um, around the country, and I still haven't seen it. I really need to. I think it's on Amazon Instant. I think it's on all those instant yeah. stuff. So I do need to check it out sometime. Um, well, good pick. Well, speaking of, do you want to tie that in with the, our discussion of the Three Ages? Yeah, well, let's just go to the Three Ages. Let's do it. The great Tone Loke uh, with Wild Things sampling Van Halen's uh, Jamie's Crying. That's right. The first album. One of the greatest of all time uh, fusions of, of rock and, and rap. Take that Run DMC and Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. The Public <laughs> Enemy and Anthrax. You know, uh, I love the Judgment Night soundtrack. The Judgment Night soundtrack. The Judgment Night soundtrack is off the chain. Anyway. Anyway, so our, our second movie this week is, is Buster Keaton's Three Ages, which, of course, is a silent film, so we don't have a clip from it, which... Hence Tone Loke. Hence Tone Loke. Uh, which, from now on, that's going to be a rule on the show. Anytime we talk about a silent <laughs> movie, we're going to preview it with some Tone Loke. 
Sounds about right. <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, so three ages, like like I was saying, with intolerance is is uh, split into different time periods. It's three time periods, and it's the the same characters and the same basic setup in all three of them. There's the Stone Age, the Roman Age, and the Modern Age. In all three of them, Buster Keaton is a young man who's in love with a with a woman played by Margaret Leahy, and uh, the man who comes between him, credited as the villain, is uh, none other than the great Wallace Beery. <laughs> That's right. And in uh, and we see kind of the 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 way the love triangle plays out in each of the three eras, and there are subtle variations and, and parallels between them. And it's I hate to to be the guy who would phrase something like this, but it's like a lesser Buster Keaton movie. Like it's not as funny, and it doesn't have like just as great uh, gags as like his greatest silent films and the general steam of Bill Sherlock Jr. But it's still a lot of fun, and it's like a, it's an hour and three minutes of of joy. Yeah, I, I yeah, I wouldn't put it up with those ones that you mentioned, or The Navigator, um, and some others, um, Cameraman, uh, but Our hospitality. I, but I wouldn't. But it's also not as bad as some. Like I really hate college, and yeah. this is this is much better than college is. I think this. Yeah, this I, for me, this movie really works. Um, it, it's you know. The nature of this, the the way the storytelling goes, it is a little disjointed. Um, but I, you know, like you said, being only an hour, it's you know, there's no there's no um, fat. You know, it, yeah. I mean, it's a very lean movie, and it and it works really well. And um, each lot, section lot, had me laughing up my ass off. Yeah, a lot of the jokes are just like from the costumes, like just seeing Buster Keaton in a, in a bear skin. You know what I love about I, I I love that Buster's the only caveman without a beard. <laughs> All the other cavemen look like uh, Charlie Manson, but uh, Buster Keaton looks like you know. Buster yeah, Keaton. and there's like you know Buster sitting on a dinosaur, which that special effect is really cool. It's, it's a stop motion scene, yeah. and it goes to show. And this is not an, uh, an original idea from my head, uh, unlike everything else I spat on this show. But um, it goes to show the difference between Keaton and Chaplin. Uh, a lot has been talked about where. Um, Chaplin kind of just set a camera down and just filmed what was taking place, but Buster Keaton knew the limited, like what would be seen in the frame, and and that opening shot of him on the dinosaur, he films it so it just looks like that he's on you know a mountaintop or whatever, and he right. and you don't expect it to move, um, and then it starts to move and you're and you're kind of just joining for a second, and then you get this great stop motion scene of him, um, especially when he goes to the top of the dinosaur, it's like a brontosaurus or something. Yeah, he goes he's like to looking the, around the dinosaur, yeah. and the dinosaur you know lets him down. And, um, and yeah, that was a really great special effect. Um, and this movie has it does have all the hallmarks of a great Buster Keaton uh, film. Like it's got amazing stunts. I mean, there's the stunt at the end when he jumps to the other side of a building. Well, in in the in the final scenes, like the the climaxes of each of the three stories, that's like where you where you see really like the it. the true Buster Keaton with like the chase sequences and the crazy stunts and and all of that. But there's but there's a lot of like you know giving a line and the manicure stuff in between. That's, I really like the it, line. It's, it's, it's cute, but it's not you know. See that this is actually what I'm going to say about this movie is um, usually those elements in a Buster Keaton short don't work for me. Yeah. Um, the the cutesy parts and the the kind of quaint things, um, I don't find them that funny. Uh, but for some reason here, they, they work. The line doing the manicure is really funny. Um, I really love when, in the Stone Age one, 
when he goes to the uh, the seer to find out whether the girl likes him or not, and they do like a, a Ouija board type thing where she pulls out this turtle. she pulls out this turtle <laughs> and they they guide this turtle across a table. Um, that's really funny. And then another thing, the things I like least in Buster Keaton shorts are usually the puns that come up, like in title cards or whatever. But this one actually has some really funny puns in it. Uh, my two favorites are. Um, in the in the Roman section, the father of uh, Margaret um, is comparing the two, Wallace Beery and Buster Keaton, and he says to Wallace Beery, "You are in the highest ranks of the Roman army." And then he looks at Buster and he says, "And you are the rankest," you know, which is really funny. Um, and then um, in the contemporary scene, the mother, and this is something I want to talk about too, is um, in in the two versions set in the past. Clearly, the father is the head of the family, and in the contemporary the modern one, one, yeah, the modern one, the, the they all defer to the mother. Um, and yeah, the, the the parents are different in each era, which is, which is an interesting uh, kind of variation. But but continue oh, so anyway, yeah, about well, well, my, I mean, it's nice of you to extend that to me because all <laughs> I wanted to say was she's looking at the bank books for both of them, and uh, Wallace Beery uses the first national bank and. <laughs> Buster Keaton uses the last national bank, which is, that's some funny stuff. Yeah. So I was, you know, it, it wasn't just till the end when this movie really got to me. Um, it, the end is clearly the best part. Um, but I was laughing along with this thing from the get-go. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the the differences between the eras are, are interesting to me. Like the, the Stone Age era is all just kind of brute violence. And, and like the parents are, are supporting Beery because he's bigger and stronger. Uh, than than Keaton, and then Keaton wins by stealing the girl, and then winning in a battle. Right, uh, and then in the Roman era, the parents are much more on on Buster's side, especially when when Beery is like exposed as like a a sneak, like he he traps uh, Buster in a, in a hole with a lion, lion after after he him. loses the chariot race, and like he's a sore loser, and so the parents are on Buster's side, and they help him out. As he, you know, goes to to rescue the girl from from Wallsbury, and then in the modern era, the parents are just concerned about money. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't have anything to do with like physical strength or anything. It's that it's that Barry uses the first national bank, and the Buster is poor. Right. Uh, but then in in that one, uh, Buster wins by just stealing the girl outright, not even confronting Barry because he's you know come up with evidence that Barry is a bigamist and, and a forger. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's interesting that we go from like violence to just kind of like a, a institutional uh, law and uh, money being the, the driving force that's keeping the lovers apart and then bringing them together. Well, and that's, I, what I like about this movie, too, is is the differences in those ages, um, like you said. Um, and it's not just the parents, but um, the relationship with the girl is different in each one, too. Um, you know, like in the contemporary one, she doesn't really care about Buster at all. Like, I mean, you know, there's the, the scene where they're in a house and, and they're both kind of pitch and woo at her and she doesn't want anything to do with him, you know? But then in the, uh, um, the Stone Age one, she's, she's actually kind of into him. She kind of digs him a little bit. And so it's nice to see that, it, you know, it's not just this template where the same thing plays out each time. And then the, the climaxes are, are very different too, like you said. Um, yeah, there's the the big uh, rock fight in the Stone Age one, which which I really like. And they like, oh, yeah. have the makeshift catapults, and, and then, they and then that's the, the cool. I mean, it's not like an actual stunt because they're not actually flinging him on a tree, but but it looks good. It's a cool effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And then I, I love the uh, the Roman chariot race in the snow because <laughs> why it, is it snowing? It snowed in Rome, <laughs> and it, it snowed in Rome just so he could do this thing where you have a dog sled instead of a instead of a chariot. Yeah, might be the funniest gag in this movie is that he he does that. He turns his chariot into a sled and he gets these these huskies to to ride. Um, but then to to win the race, he ties a cat to a stick. And dangles it in front. <laughs> I, I was going to go with the, one of the dog gets like a bum paw, so he pulls out a spare yeah, dog to the tire and changes the dog. <laughs> well, and then earlier in the Roman scene, he does this great. Uh, this is another like throwaway gag that I thought actually really worked. In this is um, he rides up on his chariot to this residence, and he gets off and he takes off his helmet and he turns his helmet into like a bike lock and he like locks the the wheel of the chariot. I love how like Barry's chariots all the horses match and they're all like these yeah. big beautiful steeds and then with Buster's is all like mismatched. He's got it's like, like a, a horse and a donkey and a mule <laughs> and just wandering all over the place. Um, I think the performance in here that I like the most is actually Wallace Beery. He's great. I think Wallace Beery is really, really wonderful in this. Somebody should write a wrestling picture for him. Yeah, they really should. Maybe some like New York playwright. I think yeah. he could really grasp like the common man nature of Wallace Beery. <laughs> um, but yeah, Wallace Beery's a great villain. And there's the scene where he and Buster um, in the modern setting um, are standing next to this scoreboard that's going to show the the lineup for the football match. And Beery's yeah. just scheduled as the coach or whatever. Yeah. Um, but just the the subtle like you know, sneers that Beery gives to Buster are really fantastic. I, I like Buster's performance in this scene. He's like, yeah, I'm playing. He's just the coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I talked about Chaplin earlier, and this sh- does show something that Chaplin was much better uh, than Keaton at, and it's playing drunk. Uh, Keaton's fine as a drunk, but... Chaplin was a master at playing a drunk. Yeah, and, and you know that's what like got him the gig in movies in the first place was his his stage performance as as a drunk. If you know the movie Chaplin is to be believed, right? Um, and you know I don't know if that has you know I mean Buster was an alcoholic, so maybe like <laughs> well at this, at this point he wasn't yet right, but he became one. So you know he you know maybe Chaplin could find the humor in it a little bit better. But I mean, that scene is still very good. Um, the scene where he accidentally gets drunk and makes an ass of himself in a restaurant. Um, and, and Wallace Beery does some really underhanded things to him there. Uh, I read that this movie was, it's Buster's first feature. And I, and I read he, that. And he directed it. Like most of the did. other uh, ones, he's either like the co-director or it's directed by somebody else with, Buster having a, a strong, you know, arterial hand in it, but yeah, I, the, I think the official credit does include uh, Edward Klein, but I think Buster actually was, and it's been proven that he was really the director of this. Um, and I read somewhere that he made it the three ages because if it was a failure, he wanted he could split them up and sell them as shorts. And I don't really buy that because I don't think these shorts these would work as shorts necessarily. I think yeah, they definitely the the jokes gain steam in in contrast. In with contrast the other. to with one like, another, you see like the difference. You know, like the uh, the modern soothsayer scene is just him like doing like the she loves me, she loves me not thing with a flower, and that's not funny at all unless you've seen like the turtle and the the dice game, the Yahtzee game. Yeah, before that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's another scene tying in with that uh, thing I was talking about earlier where Buster will. Um, use the camera's perspective to give you a false sense of what's going on. Um, there's in each age, it shows Buster um, trying to get uh, Margaret jealous, and um, 
the best one is in the Stone Age scene. He sees this other woman uh, lying down on a rock, and he goes over and he kind of, you know, he's, he's like, "What's up, girl?" and um, tries to drag her it, off it, by the hair. He tries to drag her off by the hair, and then she stands up, and she's like eight feet tall, like she's this Amazon, like crazy tall woman, and then she pushes him, and this is this might be the best shot in the movie. She pushes him off of this cliff. And it's this sh- this overhead shot of Buster falling straight down, uh, and he kind of gives this blowing kiss to her as he falls into this lake, and it's it's really well done. Yeah, it's probably like the 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 most iconic shot coming out of the film. Like like if you were to put like a a reel together of like all of the best shots in Buster Keaton movies, that's the one that would be the one that would from Three Ages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's let us talk about the stunts here because. Um, there, in the climax, there are a lot of really, really cool stunts that the, he pulls off. The the best one in the film, I think, is the, uh, and I don't know how much of it is, uh, some of it had to be faked, I'm sure, is the, the leap from one building to the other where he falls down through the awnings and that is is fake and then he grabs onto the drain pipe and goes down the drain pipe, slides into, into the fire department, down the pole to the ground. Uh, yeah, a little tidbit about that is... Originally, he was supposed to make the leap. He was supposed to just leap to the other end, and he messed up. And there was a net beneath the camera frame that caught him. Okay. And he actually got really injured by that. He he leapt, and he reaches for the, the, the wall of the adjoining building, and he doesn't make it, and he falls, and he lands, landed in this net that we don't see off screen. Um, but Buster said, keep it. And he it, then he expanded on the gag and had the, the whole awning thing which wasn't originally planned or whatever and it turns it into this wonderful wonderful yeah, yeah. section it's, it's a much better gag that way than than just than jumping if, across if, the, if the leap had, had worked yeah um and there's also because it because it, it escalates like you, you first you think he's going to make the leap and then and then he doesn't and gasp and then you see the awnings and like oh that's funny and then he grabs onto the drain pipe like okay and then he and slides then in the drain pipe falls and goes through the window and with with each level, it just gets more and more uh, funny. Yeah, oh, it's just it's just wonderful. Um, and then in the Roman section, there are a couple of things that he does. Like he does like a, a javelin thing where he pulls himself up to other uh, floors, and he does this rough and tumble thing with a guard where he like kicks this guard, and the guard I, I can't even describe it, but it's this complete acrobatic, perfectly timed thing that just looks so effortless, and it couldn't have been. Most impressive for me is in the, uh, you know, aside from the... Uh, the jump. The jump is uh, in the Stone Age sequence where everyone's throwing rocks and, and Buster get, gets a big club and he's chasing to go after Barry and uh, some guy comes at him from the background and throws a rock at him. And he, he, yeah. he hits the rock with, with the bat, with the club, like it's a baseball, and, and it hits it directly into the guy who threw the rock <laughs> at him. Yeah. And I don't know how many times you'd have to do that to hit... It's a rock. It's not a baseball. Right. And, and, it's, goes, a, and it's a club, not a baseball yeah, bat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dead center into the guy's chest. And I, I don't know if they like had it on the string or something, but yeah, it's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, and there's also the football, the end of the football scene, uh, you know, it's 0-0 zero, zero in, the, in the bottom of the fourth. Is that what we call it? Bottom of the fourth? No, wait. <laughs> the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter. <laughs> this goes to show how much I pay attention to football. Um, and Buster ended up scoring the winning touchdown. Um, but he does it in a most Buster Keaton-esque way. You know, he like he, you know, he'll leap over a guy, do like a you know a twirl in the air, and go under some guy's legs, and then he's he's just at the the what is it called end zone, um, and he puts the, the the football literally between his feet and 
throws, you know, thrusts his legs forward into the end zone. And I think he the... actually would have been down before the ball crossed well, the, probably... the goal line because, like, his back is on the ground before his his feet with the ball get it over. But well, that's neither here. That's neither here. There's today. a there's an odd cut in that sequence too, like an overhead shot of, of him running in like a serpentine manner as like he's you know dodging people that are jumping at him. That's it was kind of like a jarring weird cut. Yeah, it is me. weird. You don't know where. You don't know who you're supposed to be following because there's so many bodies moving in different yeah. directions in that. Yeah, it's uh, more like like it, it. That seemed like the most Looney Tunes esque sketch to me. Like that's that's something that Bugs Bunny would do. Like oh, he'd yeah. get beat up all through the the football game, and then he'd do like this crazy insane thing at the end. Yeah, and it works. Yeah. It, it works in live action too. There's an there's a moment in this movie that ties it in with uh, not only Bill and Ted but the theme of this entire show. And Buster gets arrested because uh, Wallace Beery has uh, put a, a bottle of booze in his uh, jacket. And Buster escapes by climbing into a phone booth yep. and getting carted away out of the police station. And I saw that and I said, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, well, obviously we've both seen Three Ages before, so maybe this was like a subconscious thing that we yeah. recognized the phone booth connection. Or <laughs> It blew my mind when it happened. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. This works just great. Um, I really like the end uh, of this film where, and this goes into the difference, the, how things stay the same and yet they're different, where at the end it shows each family, because Buster obviously wins the girl in each uh, section, spoilers, um, and it shows him leaving first his cave with her and she comes out and there are like at least eight or nine kids that come out and tow. A whole, whole bunch of kids. whole bunch of kids. Then in the Roman age, same thing happens, but there are like maybe half a dozen. Yeah, slight, slightly fewer kids, but still a lot of kids. And then modern times, they leave the house and no kids, they just have a dog, have which a I think dog. is really sweet. Which I, I, that's a they're kind of a, a dark joke because <laughs> yeah, like it's the, really the, dark. the whole point is in like the earlier eras, like that they can't stop having sex, right? So they have to have, <laughs> they just keep having kids because they're constantly going at it. And but in the modern world, yeah, no sex, just get a dog, no sex. <laughs> Solve all your problems. It's a little sad. <laughs> Maybe it sheds a little light on, on Keaton's disastrous marriages up until 1940 <laughs> or so. I love how we've managed to, to uh, turn this comedy into a discussion about his marital woes and his alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to talk about Buster Keaton without talking about those because he was such a, a great and, and vital filmmaker for a decade, and then he was just terrible. I know. It's, it's, a, it's one of the biggest travesties of... Uh, film history really what happened to Buster Keaton um, because see him here he's he's peerless I mean he's just wonderful and the, the and not just the like I said not just the physical stuff that he does but the uh, uh, visual imagination he's got you know when he breaks the columns in the Roman times um, it's a yeah, really that's great a, set that's piece. a cool little uh, uh, like Samson reference yeah. yeah and he just and that took a lot of work to build that and then just crush it. I mean, I think that's really cool. So, um, yeah, he's 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 the greatest. <laughs> you know who's also the greatest? Van Halen? Diamond Dave. That's right. You know, one more thing about Bill and Ted. It is a shame, you know, uh, Ted is wearing a Van Halen shirt throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and it is a Sammy Hagar era. Uh, well, that would have been appropriate for 1980. I know, but I would think that Ted would have better taste than to rock the Van Hagar stuff. But anyway, with that, that's our discussion of Three Ages.
Okay, so that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week talking about uh, some Thanksgiving turkeys. We got uh, Brian De Palma's Bonfire of the Vanities starring Tom Hanks and Charlie Chaplin's Monsieur Verdoux starring Charlie Chaplin. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. At least half of it's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you are, uh, you know, in New England, about, uh, you should go to the Harvard Film Archive uh, on November 25th at 7 p.m. Uh, Jay Hoberman, yeah. who we were talking about earlier, will be uh, introducing a screening of David Lynch's Inland Empire, which uh, may be the last feature film David Lynch ever directs because he seems to be not interested in that stuff anymore. That's got to be like the most disturbing family of bunnies in yeah. movie ever. <laughs> One of them voiced by Naomi Watts. Uh, if you are in Chicago, you got to head to the Music Box Theater next Sunday. Get this lineup at the Music Box on Sunday. I saw this. 2.45, Pierre Lafoe. 5 o'clock, Bonnie and Clyde. 7.30, Singing in the Rain. 9.40, A Clockwork Orange. Pack a, pack a picnic lunch. <laughs> pack two and hang out You're at the music box it. all day. It's part of their uh, 30th anniversary celebration. Go. Yeah, they're, they're also doing, I think a couple days before, they're doing a double feature of uh, Big Lebowski and North by Northwest. Yeah, they're playing is... Citizen Kane and His Girl Friday. They're playing Harold Lloyd's The Freshman. I think it's Harold Lloyd's Freshman. I assume so. Uh, yeah, it's got live music. So Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's great. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my... Secondary pick this week. Uh, if you want to find us, uh, we're on the internet at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. We're on the Twitter at geosandershow, and we're on email at uh, georgesandershow at gmail.com. The George Sanders Show. The George Sanders Show at gmail.com. It's been a few weeks since we heard uh, George. But here it is. It's appropriate. It's as time goes by. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time.
be excellent to each other. Party on, dude.